Shall we pray? Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for those that have made it possible for us to have your word, those who have given their lives for it, those who have been so committed to it over the centuries. Lord, we pray that your living and active word would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, can I just say again, what a joy it is to be here with you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, It is genuinely a joy to be in partnership with you in the gospel in this amazing city. Uh, And we we love this church. We pray for you. Um, I thank God for your history. I came here many years ago to preach at a wedding. And um, there was a chap at the the Palladium, London Palladium, and apparently he said, uh, you get invited to the Palladium twice, uh, once on the way up in your career, and once on the way down in your career, so thank you for having me back. (laughs) But it's just, it is good, isn't it, that we can, there's so much that we can do together. When brothers and sisters dwell in unity, the Lord commands a blessing. And I, I love the fact that, that churches all over the city are thriving and growing. Uh, and we work together closely with other Anglican churches, churches of other denominations. We meet together, the leaders, and have breakfast together. And we encourage one another and support one another. And, you know, and I'll be saying a little bit in a minute about boxes and putting God in a box. But actually, you know, we might have our shape for God. But God has his own shape. And we can do so much as we do it together. There's so much more we can do together than we can apart. And I'm really excited uh, for now, but I'm also excited for the future and what that may have for us across across this part of Norwich and across the whole city as we seek to see the kingdom of God advance. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I know you believe that and I believe it too. And so together we can do so much. So it's great to be here. So thank you very much for for having me. This psalm seems so pertinent for us, for us now in this moment in history, uh, as, as a nation, as people across the nations, as Christians in the world, as, as people in Norwich and as the people of Holy, Holy Trinity, Norwich. We're living in a time when, you know, they say a week is a long time in politics, but a day is a long time in politics. Things are just changing so, so quickly. I spent two days away from my wife recently. We hadn't fallen out. It was, it was deliberate. We were supposed to be doing it. And um, I went away and we had one prime minister and I came back and we had another one. <laughs> Things are changing rapidly. Things are going on and we might be like the psalmist and we might say, why? What's going on? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? What's going on in in the church? What's going on as we see numbers apparently decreasing in church? Lord, what's happening? And that's one of the great things about the Psalms, isn't it? That they almost give us permission to ask those big questions. What on earth is going on? And David is saying that here. He's, um, He's got problems with his son. Absalom is causing him problems. And he's writing in that context saying, what's going on? We know it's David writing because in Acts 4, um, after Peter and John have been before the Sanhedrin, they come away and they're praying together. And they pray this passage. And they say it was David, as our father David said. 
So we know that it's a, a psalm of, of David. What on earth is going on? What's going on with ISIS? What's going on? And I make a disclaimer here. I'm not making any political statements. But what's going on in America? What's going on with Trump? I don't understand it. Why, Lord? What on earth is happening? What's going on in Syria? What's all this about Brexit? What's happening in the Tory party, in the Labour party? What's happening in Scotland? There's lots of raging and plotting going on. We heard about Michael Gove and his plots, didn't we? All sorts of stuff happening. And we might say, why? It could be a real worry to us. What's going on around us? Waiting for a new incumbent can be worrying. What's happening in the future? What does the future hold? But a much better question for us to ask is, who holds the future? Because when we know who holds the future, we don't worry about what the future holds. What's happening then and what's happening now is that people want to do things their way. They want to make the rules and regulations themselves. They want to define who God is. And people are always, as I say, putting God in a box. For some people, it might be a coffin because they want to say God is dead, like Nietzsche and Dawkins. For other people, it might be they want to put God in a a box um, of maybe Christmas and and Easter and the occasional christening. So they put God in in a pretty box that they just bring out as and when they want to. It might be that we put God in a, in a, in a different sort of box. We might, uh, we might put God um, in the box. We like Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And so we put him in, in that box. We like the picture of Jesus stroking the lamb. It might be that we go better than that, that we actually, we, we're believing Christians, we're coming to church, and we put God in a, in a bigger box. We give him a bit more space to move. But it's the box of our particular theology. And we say, we think God works this way. But God is God. And God will do what he will do the way that he will do it. We might want to get God out of the box when things get tough, but carry on doing things the way that we want to do them. We want Jesus on our terms, not on his. The people in Psalm 2, they want God on their terms, not on his terms. There's a real danger in doing that. There's a real danger in wanting to break the chains and throw off the fetters that God puts on us. Because actually we should be in the box that God creates for us, not the box that we create for him. The chains and the fetters, they say, let's throw them off. We want freedom. We want to do things our way, not God's way. The danger of that sort of freedom is it's no freedom at all. We know that from the way society has moved on. And we have sexual freedom And it creates bondage, human bondage in all sorts of different ways that you will know, so I'm not even going to go there and talk about it. But we've got the highest pregnancy, teenage pregnancy rate in Europe 
It's one way that we can show that it's not, it's not freedom at all. We want behavioral freedom. We want to live with no restraints. We want intellectual freedom that we have no baseline upon which to base the rest of what we think and believe, which just results in postmodernism and relativism. But God says no. Actually, real freedom are the chains that I place on you. I have a friend of mine who was um, going along to his son was playing football. And uh, he turned up for this football match and the referee didn't turn up. And so he, he, um, he was given the whistle. He said, but I don't know enough about the rules of football. And he said it was a complete disaster. There were kids everywhere taking chunks out of each other. And then the referee turned up, blew the whistle, brought the game to order, put the rules in place. And everybody had a much better time. They enjoyed it. Because God knows what the rules should be because he made it all. As parents, we can look at our children and they can be making a mess. They can be getting in all sorts of bother. And God looks on us and we're getting in a mess and there's all sorts of bother going on. But he doesn't always intervene. I didn't always intervene with my children. Because actually they have to learn from the mistakes they make. We all learn from the mistakes we make, or hopefully we do. Winston Churchill said, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. We learn from our mistakes. But there comes a point when, when we as parents say, enough. And there's a point when God comes in and says, enough. Enough is enough. And we find that here. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. I remember one occasion, my son was being a complete pain. Um, he was in his mid-teens. Anyone else had children in their mid-teens have been a complete pain? No, it's just, it's just me. Okay. Um, and he came in, and he went up to his room, and he slammed the door shut, and he put his music on as loud as he possibly could. And um, I went up, and I knocked on the door. I said, Matt. That's his name. I said, Matt. I said, could you turn your music down, please? No, shan't. Knocked on the door. Matt, would you please turn your music down? No. Knock again. Matt, if you don't turn your music down, there will be a consequence. His response was, I don't care. And you can't punish someone that doesn't care. (laughs) At which point I went downstairs and switched off the power to the top of the house. Because I had the power to do that. And God has the power to switch on or off the power around us. God has the power to control the circumstances. God is in charge. And that's what this psalm says. God is in charge. He who made it all is in charge of it all. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We can say, what on earth is going on around us? And God says, don't worry. I'm in charge. There was a, uh, an American um, theologian by the name of J. Vernon McGee who said this, this is God's universe and he does things his way. Now you may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> God's in charge and we can trust him with our present and our future. He's not in a box, he made the box Every single box. Nothing was made apart from him. He made everything that there is. 
And we can trust him that he knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. He is before all things and over all things. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why do the nations plot in vain? Because it is vanity. It's foolishness. You cannot fight against the one who has the force of nature, not just behind him, but in his very hands. God is the God of just at the right time. He does everything he wants to, as and when he wants to do it, just at the right time, when we were still powerless. When these people who were plotting were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He's the God of just at the right time. He is building his church. He is advancing his kingdom. And he will have his glory. So what's the consequence to us of this? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that when we know who God is, then we are convicted. It brings conviction. When we see this God for who he really is, when we come to him on his terms, not on ours, we are convicted. Because actually we all put God in a box one way or another. We all plot in vain one way or another. We all build our own kingdoms one way or another. When Isaiah came before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 and he saw God for who he really is, he was ruined. Woe to me, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I am ruined. Seeing God for who he is, as the psalmist does in this psalm, ruins us. As Isaiah says, woe to me, it's far better for us to say woe to me than it is for Jesus to say woe to you. That's what he said to the Pharisees who had plotted, who had put him in a box. Woe to you. What an awful thing to think that God would say that to us. It's far better for us to fall upon our knees and say, Woe to me, for I am ruined. It brings conviction. The second thing it does is bring confidence because we know that we belong to Christ and we are co heirs with Christ. The nations are all His, we read in verse 8 of the psalm. It's all His, it's His universe. And so if we are convicted and ruined, so that we are born again into his family, we have absolute confidence to stand with him, knowing that he will bring his purposes about. And he will use you and me to bring those purposes about. I don't know about you, but I get really excited about that. I am a spiritual optimist. I really do believe, I really, really do believe that God wins. I really believe that we're part of the winning team because he's called us to be his people. He's called us to be his church. He's called us to work together for his glory and he will have it. We've read the end of the book. He stands upon the earth and we will see him in the flesh. Not another, but I and you will see him in the flesh. 
And we will kneel before him with every tribe and every tongue and every nation. But we won't be kneeling before him in fear. We'll be kneeling before him in joy that he is ours and we are his. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We have confidence. There was a missionary who was born in 1813 by the name of James Calvert. And he went to uh, an island um, near Fiji uh, where they were cannibals. And he was on the way there and the captain of the vessel said to him, You fool, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert's response was, we died before we came here. We died before we came here. He was so confident of his place in Christ that nothing the world could throw at him, no plotting in vain, no conspiring, no anything would come between him and his king. Presumably he wasn't eaten because he died in 1892. Um, So... um, He did arrive, but he had confidence in the gospel. And the other thing I think that this does for us is that it gives gives us courage. It gives us courage to say, as the psalmist says, do you know who he is? To go out and share with people. Do you know who this Jesus is? He's the son of God. He's the one who makes the nations his inheritance, the ends of the earth his possession. He's the one who rules with an iron scepter. This is our Jesus. He's not Jesus meek and mild that we put into a box. He's the Lord of all things. It gives us confidence and courage. So it gives us courage to go and say these things and to be who God has called us to be. I was speaking to a friend of mine actually just two days ago. He's a missionary in, in Germany. And as you know, in Germany, they've had a, a massive influx of, um, of refugees from Syria. Um, thousands and thousands of Muslims have, have come into Germany. And many of them are seeing dreams, having dreams and visions of Jesus. This massive opportunity to, to share Jesus and to bring a whole generation of Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a case of us having to go there. God has a plan, and they're, they're coming into our nations for us to share with them. And this, this one uh, Muslim man had had a revelation of Jesus in a dream, and Jesus had said to him, I am Jesus, follow me, be baptized. And so he went to a Lutheran pastor, who's a friend of my friend's. He said, the Lutheran pastor is a good guy. And this Muslim man said to him, I've I've seen Jesus, and I must be baptized today. And the Lutheran pastor said, well, I'll I'll check with the elders of the church, and we'll see when we've got the next baptism service coming up. And the Muslim man looked at him and said, you haven't seen Jesus, have you? (laughs) When we see Jesus, it changes who we are. It gives us courage When Peter saw the risen Jesus, it transformed him from a man in an upper room to a man on the ground, preaching the gospel to a crowd of the Jewish people who had bade for the blood of Jesus. We read that whole wonderful sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he he concludes with this. He says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There was no fear in Peter that day. He wasn't worried about the Jewish people having plotted in vain to kill Jesus. 
Because Jesus had overcome death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Totally transformed because he'd seen Jesus. He'd seen the Jesus that the psalmist talks about here in Psalm 2. The one who is the son of the father and who has the inheritance of the nations. And then finally, when we see Jesus in this context, we're changed. Verse 12. Blessed are those that take refuge in him. The only way that we can take refuge in Jesus is to die to self and be born again in Christ. We die to the world and all that it has and we are born again into Jesus Christ. George Muller, that amazing Christian man who set up those orphanages in Bristol in the 19th century, said this. There was a day when I died, utterly died. I died to George Muller, his opinions, preferences, tastes and will. Died to the world, its approval and censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved of God. He wasn't concerned about the plotting. He wasn't concerned about the views and the attitudes of those around him. He wasn't worried about the political future of this, that, or the other. Because he died to all that. And he was alive in Christ. He had taken his refuge in Christ. And he was blessed as a result of it. John Chrysostom, in his final sermon, which led to his exile and death in 407, he said this, The waters are raging and the winds are blowing. There's so much, isn't there, of verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. The waters are raging and the winds are blowing, but I have no fear, for I stand firmly upon the rock. What am I to fear? Is it death? Life to me means Christ and death is gain. Is it exile? The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Is it loss of property? I brought nothing into the world and I will bring nothing out of it. I have only contempt for the world and its ways and I scorn its honours. Where is our confidence? Is it in our politicians? Is it even in our church leaders? Is it, is it, is it in our civic leaders? Is it in us? Or is our confidence in the one who has the whole of the history of the world, of the universe, of everything in the palm of his hand, and he will have his way. Because when we know that and our refuge is in him, then we will be secure. We will be changed. We won't be worried and upset. We will trust in the Lord with all our hearts. We won't lean on our own understandings. In all our ways we will acknowledge him and he will make our paths straight. That's our Jesus. That's your Jesus. And that's my Jesus. And so we can be sure and confident that he will have his way. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you so much 
that when we look at all the things that are going on around us, all the trouble in the world, but we can just as you did, would look out and have compassion on the world because it is lost like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. But Lord, we can be secure and confident in who you are. Lord, would you help us to see you afresh? Would you help us to have that fresh conviction, that fresh confidence, that fresh courage that you would bring change in us so that those around us would be changed by your gospel? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.